Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Today we're discussing a problem that everyone acknowledges, HIV AIDS. Last Saturday was the 30th annual World AIDS Day, a day devoted to AIDS awareness and to raising funds to combat the disease. St. Louis has been a big part of the story, and still is. Joining me to talk about all of it are Dr. Rupa Patel, the director of PERP, the pre-exposure prophylaxis for the HIV program at Washington University's Division of Infectious Diseases. She's in studio. Joining us by phone is Jesse Milan, Jr., president and CEO of AIDS United, an organization dedicated to eliminating AIDS. He is a nationally recognized expert on HIV AIDS politics and programs, and he has been living with HIV for over three decades. Jesse and Rupa, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Don, for having me. Jesse, let me begin with you. It occurs to me, uh, as the outsider looking in, if you will, that uh, I don't understand what the numbers are anymore with AIDS. I think that people have have sort of forgotten about it. It's on the fringes, on the sidelines. Well, that seems to be the case, and that's why World AIDS Day is an opportunity to remind people that this is still an epidemic both nationally and globally. Globally, there are 36 million people living with HIV, and in here in the United States, about 1.2 million people are living with HIV. Obviously an enormous problem. Rupa, where are we right now in terms of trying to figure out uh, how to deal with this? Yeah, I I think that um, the community in terms of research has done um, what they can in terms of looking at a vaccine. I think for prevention, we we do two things, um, actually three things for prevention when we're trying to get down to some of the goals in the United States of no new infections per year. And that is um, identifying as best as we can um, people living with HIV um, if they're not diagnosed um, and if they're diagnosed, getting them back into care. So um, testing and then um, bringing people into treatment because we know if um, we can get an individual on treatment and something called undetectable or um, have a low viral load, actually the NIH and the CDC um, just in the past few months um, have been campaigning on something called undetectable equals untransmittable. And what that means is it's very hard for an individual um, with HIV to pass on that virus. And that's a major prevention goal and measure. And the next thing is vaccine development. And the third area for HIV prevention is pre-exposure prophylaxis. And what that is is basically taking medications that we know can um, suppress the virus in the human body and using that in individuals that are HIV negative um, before they're exposed to the virus to keep them negative. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really important to understand because we've eliminated, you know, we've come down to very low numbers for measles and polio, mm-hmm. mainly through vaccination and keeping people negative. And so until we get a, a highly effective vaccine, we're able to to use pre-exposure prophylaxis. And that is about um, 100% effective if taken every day in the real world. The the study showed about 92% and more. So we're, we're actually, as a research community, moving forward. And then as a community, we're trying to implement all these different, um, these items. How close are we to that vaccine? 
Um, we are quite a few years away in terms of a highly effective vaccine, meaning something more than 90%. But um, I'm happy to say we have a vaccine that's being looked at in South Africa right now that's about, um, you know, in the 30s um, in terms of percent. And, and Don, where that's going to be very useful is where we have hyper epidemics, where you can go in different countries, even in, in the U.S., mm-hmm. and you have a very high population that um, can is it at risk and you can use that vaccine on top of all the other measures we're doing. And so in general, going back to your first question, we've made headway. We have a decline. Um, a few years ago, we had about 50,000 new infections per year. We're slowly declining into, into the 30,000s. And what I'm happy to say is we did in different um, populations that are more at risk, such as gay, bisexual, heterosexual females, we've actually been making headway in certain populations. You mentioned Africa. My daughter was in the Peace Corps in Lesotho teaching AIDS orphans, and there was no shortage of those poor youngsters. It's yes. big, big, big problem in Africa. Jesse, back to you. Give me some sense of what life is like living with HIV AIDS and um, how you're being treated for it. Well, thank you for asking that. I've been living with HIV myself for 36 years, and I think a lot of the uh, items that Dr. Patel just mentioned are what has transformed people to live long with HIV AIDS. Today, if you get on treatment, if you're 20 years old and you're diagnosed and you get on treatment right away, the um, likelihood is very high that you will live an entire normal lifespan. And we're trying to make sure that young people understand that so getting into care and knowing your HIV status, as Dr. Patel just said, is critical. Um, then the goal, once you are in care and taking medications, is to maintain an undetectable viral load. And uh, viral suppression is probably the gold standard that we all aspire to who are living with HIV because it means that the virus is no longer replicating itself and destroying your immune system so that your immune system is no longer able to fight off all of those diseases in the, in the world that uh, could lead to an AIDS-defining illness and, and, of course, then to death. So achieving viral suppression is not only effective for the individual who's living with HIV, but it's also, as Dr. Patel just said, um, helpful because if you have an undetectable viral load, a completely suppressed viral load, Transmitting the virus is literally impossible. So undetectable equals untransmittable is also helping to not only get people on care so that they are taking care of themselves, but they're also able to take care of their loved ones, those who they may have uh, sexual encounters with, because they're not being able to transmit the virus onto them. It is a huge change in the in the approach to HIV AIDS to understand that by being on treatment, you're not only taking care of yourself, but you're preventing any new infections from happening from you. If I may ask, how expensive is it to, for you to, uh, to maintain this, uh, this medication? Well, I think that's part of the, the policy and polit- uh, politics conversation that we have to have because having insurance makes it possible to have direct access to these drugs. And I, for example, have insurance and, and copays can be quite reasonable. And many of the pharmaceutical companies that manufacture the antiretrovirals that we're taking and also uh, prep for prevention have copay assistance programs that make getting these drugs 
highly effective and highly affordable. But for some parts of the country where, for example, Medicaid has not been expanded to make it possible for more people to actually have health insurance, there is a very big problem. And it's not just affordability, it's even getting into the door to see a doctor so you can even get these drugs. So that policy issue really has to be part of our conversation uh, around World AIDS Day. And you're nodding your head. <laughs> you're, you're agreeing with all of this. This is, it has got to be an, a big expense for many people. Yeah, Don, I, I really want to chime in. Um, Jesse, in Missouri, we're a Medicaid non-expansion state. So mm-hmm. this is uh, what I love we can bring up as a community for policy. Um, I want to highlight on what Jesse said about living with HIV as a caretaker, the advancement in the medications, Don, the medications are one pill once a day, mm-hmm. almost no side effects. It's really even smaller than a multivitamin. So that's been transformative in being able to take the meds um, compared to what we used to see, the that cocktail. cocktail. Yeah. yeah, and that was what, uh, you know, Dr. Powderly had started working on at WashU, and some of the cocktails were born out of our university. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, the you know, when you take the medications, people don't realize that after about two to four weeks, you can actually rec- um, become undetectable. They're that fast and they're that potent in such a safe way. And Don, we're looking at medications that are longer acting, kind of like the birth control methodology. Mm -hmm. So we've got pills, but we're even looking at a a long acting injection. Um, And PrEP is moving that way too. So I'm I'm just excited to say, I think it's only going to get easier um, in terms of taking the pills. Is a a person no longer infectious when this undetectable viral load is Present or not present? So we want to say that HIV is not curable, um, but yes, they're not infectious. And why I love this so much is because it reduces the stigma of having HIV and and the, the, the risk and the fear about transmission. And it allows the conversation to be more open. And it uh, then allows us as providers and members of the community to promote testing mm. for young individuals and want to know their status. Jesse Rupa just used the word stigma, and I'd like to get uh, your reaction to that and, and what that has been like for you, if in fact it's been a factor. Well, stigma is certainly a factor, and achieving an undetectable viral load so that you know that you are going to can live as long as anyone else and that you're no longer infectious or able to transmit the virus, that breaks down a lot of the internal stigma that people living with HIV often feel. They don't, they don't, we don't feel like we're vectors of disease anymore, that we're some per- social pariah. But the stigma around knowing that you have HIV and wanting to share that information with your loved ones, with your faith community, even with your coworkers. You know, it, it, in any workplace, we hear people talking about, oh, I'm going to the doctor because I, um, I'm concerned about my diabetes or something like that. And you develop a support system. Developing that support system for people living with HIV is still hugely problematic because the, the stigma seems to be so pervasive. So we're encouraging people to want to disclose to let them to let the world know that you have HIV, but disclosing in safe spaces with people who are educated about HIV, so that they're not afraid of the, the the drinking cup and the eating utensils. All of that ancient information. The more people know, the more the stigma is reduced. 
and the more people are able to embrace and support people living with HIV. But isn't there an ethical responsibility to disclose to anyone with whom you might come in contact? There's no, there's no reason to feel any ethical need to disclose when there is no risk, literally zero risk of transmission. And we spent so much of the last 30 years helping people understand that. Even back in the 80s when we were teaching people around blood spills or accidents in the workplace, we know the virus literally dissipates as soon as it hits the air, so no one was ever at risk even in the workplace. And toilets and saliva, all of those things, all of those myths have been dispelled. You know, this is the 30th anniversary of the wonderful mailing that the Surgeon General sent out to every household telling them about HIV-AIDS and understanding that there literally is no risk for any normal social contact. And after 30 years, we still have to relearn that information all the time. Rupa, your, your thought on the, the ethics of all of this? You know, I agree with Jesse in this. I think there are state laws. When we go to laws and HIV criminalization, there are state laws on disclosure and forms. But I, I think that we, we need to really um, hear what Jesse's been saying about um, promoting the discussions of HIV and destigmatization. And he's and, you know, I agree with him with the ethics of, you know, when someone's not at risk, um, you know, then we should just talk about disclosing at that time. Where does Missouri stand with regard to state law and AIDS? Yeah, but Missouri, um, you know, has some stricter laws um, and antiquated laws about the transmission still in the laws. Um, they have written that there's transmission through saliva and biting, which is not scientifically um, supported. And even the guidelines by the CDC have um, shown that, uh, you know, there's negligible transmission through saliva and biting. And so our laws have not been updated to what science has been updated. Um, and that's, that's unfortunate. Yeah, that, that really has to change, doesn't it? have to take a break. We'll do that now. We're talking about HIV, AIDS, and AIDS research. We'll be back to continue this conversation in just a moment. If you'd like to be a part of it, give us a call at 382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org, or we'll take a tweet at STL on air. This is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach. Now back to our conversation with Dr. Rupa Patel and Jesse Milan. Okay, Jesse, I want to come back to you because I, I started this program by mentioning the history of, of AIDS in St. Louis. And could you quickly uh, run us through how the very earliest days of this uh, AIDS crisis, if you will, um, represented here in St. Louis? Well, what is not known very well by anyone, including many historians, is that the very first person... Uh, to die of AIDS uh, and who had the HIV virus was a young man in St. Louis. He was 15 years old, and actually he died in 
1969, but we did not know that the uh, cause of his death was the HIV virus until well into the 1980s. So actually, patient number one was right there in St. Louis. How were you able to backtrack, or were the doctors, whomever, able to backtrack and find out that it was, in fact, uh, the virus that killed him? Well, the young man whose name was uh, Robert Rayford, and he was an African-American in St. Louis. After he died, several years later, after the HIV-AIDS virus was identified in 1981, um, people went back and looked at the medical records and saw that he was exhibiting some of the very um, key symptoms of AIDS. And by looking at um, tissues that, that were still preserved, uh, they were able to identify by the late 1980s that he actually was infected with HIV and the cause of his death was AIDS. Uh, Rupa, I'm sure you are aware of, of this story, that the fact that it kind of all got started here. Yeah, I've heard about the stories, um, and it's it's part of history, and some of it's left out by Jesse, but, um, sure. and, and we're so grateful for individuals like Jesse to to be able to talk about this. Why is the community of people of color so more prone to uh, contract the disease? Yeah, Don, this is just going into health disparities overall for, um, you know, even diabetes, maternal uh, mortality. I I think in general, we have different outcomes for Latinos, African-Americans, people of color. And um, this... uh, this is not just an HIV problem. It's it's a whole St. Louis, Missouri, and the, a national problem. Um, but in general, some of the factors that tie into this is the social determinants of health. So um, income, socioeconomics, access to health care, awareness, yeah. um, comfort in, um, Jesse, what he talked about, safe spaces and support groups um, about HIV testing oh, uh, and awareness and STDs. And Jesse, this is kind of what your organization is all about, as I understand it. Yes, Age United, uh, we're a national organization. Of course, we focus on national policy uh, with Congress and the administration and grant making to support uh, grassroots organizations all across the country. We gave away about $8 million this year and also capacity building to help local organizations do better at achieving their, their mission for HIV AIDS. And so we work very hard on the issues of stigma and we're mo- working very hard on some of the intersectional issues like viral hepatitis as well as the opioid epidemic and also helping people understand that HIV AIDS is part of the larger social justice question uh, because of exactly what Dr. Patel said, access to health care uh, creates a greater sense of health equity. But right now we're living too much in a world of health inequities. Yeah. As a matter of fact, we've done a number of programs here on the fact that you can have adjacent zip codes with an 18-year difference in mortality between the uh, the poorer community, the the um, black community, if you will, and the uh, more affluent communities. And the statistics are very clear that approximately 40% of all people living with HIV in this country and more than half of all new diagnoses are in the African-American community but the African-American community makes up only 12% of the U.S. population. So the disproportionality is very, very clear. And that's true also for Latinos. And our Native American friends remind us of that as well.
We have a, uh, a an email here from one of our listeners in Crestwood, and I'll, I'll give this to you, Doctor. Uh, Madonna writes, uh, she, what is your guest's response to the unverified claim by a Chinese researcher that he has used CRISPR technology on an embryo to make the resulting child immune to HIV? Wow, that's, that's something. Yes, so um, we know that there are... Um, different uh, techniques in terms of gene editing and and sequences for changing your immune system and changing the way that HIV can come into the body. And I, I think the the bigger question is what this researcher did in Hong Kong. And, and I think um, as a researcher myself, we have to abide by the ethical rules of the international and the national community. And there was a wonderful show on NPR not too long ago um, and, and by this group about um, what are what are the ethics around this um, and how when you're a researcher, you do need to go through an international review board locally at your institution and then abide by national and international guidelines. And so um, this type of research is not fostered. And um the problem is we don't know exactly what he did um, in great detail, and so it's hard to comment on this on a, on a very detailed way. What sort of collaboration is there internationally on this issue? I mean, it would think that people might be uh, replicating what you're doing here not knowing you're doing it unless there's a means of uh, letting them know that you're doing it. Well, I think in terms of gene editing and stem cell research, uh, that is a different ballgame. Mm. This is not even a space that yeah. I'm, I'm in in terms of the genomics, but um, there are um, bioethical organizations out there to help put this together. But I do need to say that this case has stimulated a resurgence of all the stakeholders to come together and have communication, including governments, etc. Yeah. Well, that's encouraging to hear. We have uh, Jerry, one of our listeners, has just sent us an email. He writes, I am curious regarding the suppression protocols, how much research has been done to see if other drugs, uh, medicinal or illicit, might interfere with the protocol. Do you have any idea? In terms of HIV, go ahead, Jesse. Jesse, go ahead. Well, we probably should just do a little debriefing on the viral suppression issue because viral suppression is not something that's being well achieved in this country. Barely 50% of all the people living with HIV are achieving viral suppression for all the reasons that we've described, particularly the general lack of access to health care. So, and what's quite surprising is that there are countries in Africa, there are regions in Africa that are achieving 90% viral suppression for the people in their communities, and that is a wonderful story, and much of that is because of the U.S. tax dollar support through the president's emergency plan on AIDS relief that has sent literally $70 billion around the world over the last 15 years. But right here at home, only 50% of us having uh, achieving viral suppression is a very sad story. And it's one that I think has to be connect, has to be told on World AIDS Day and connected to the lack of access to care and the continuing health disparities in this country. But World AIDS Day is only one day. I mean, you're in the process of community outreach uh, every day. Every day. And we're facing this problem every day. And we recognize that there are certain regions in the country where uh, achieving viral suppression is particularly problematic. But there are also an increasing number of states and major cities that are declaring that they will end the epidemic by getting at least 
to 90% viral suppression, as well as at least 90% people knowing their status within the next two to seven years. Seattle is one of those. Texas is starting to become one. And here in Albany, New York, because New York has declared that it will end the epidemic and have 90% of its population living with HIV virus suppressed. So the possibilities of what can be done when the community and the government work together are just amazing. Rupa, what exactly is, is the work that you're doing? Yeah. Um, so, Don, we were able to, in 2013, um, very clearly identify that um, Missouri needed to have a jolt on um, the awareness of pre-exposure prophylaxis, other HIV prevention um, modalities with this, um, and, and what we know is the comprehensive care package of HIV testing, STD identification, and t- um, testing and treatment, um, and you know the use of condoms and and all the other things. And so, in in about 2013, I. Um, had founded um, the um, pre-exposure prophylaxis program, which is under the Division of Infectious Diseases. And what that did is it created a a clinical care unit, so we see patients. We also did research um, regarding how difficult it was access, it is hard to access mm-hmm. PrEP in a Medicaid non-expansion state. Mm-hmm. And I can go into that. Just what's the general cost so we could give those numbers to our local and national government. Mm-hmm. And then very important, like like Jesse's work does too, the technical assistance to really capacity build other organizations that have the motivation um, or even the desire in the future and to give them direct technical assistance using a lot of the resources of Washington University in St. Louis to help them integrate PrEP sustainably and cost-consciously into their daily prescribing um, routine modalities uh, and in organizations like a federally qualified health center has lots of primary care providers mm-hmm. that help um, individuals in uh, underserved zip codes and how we can um, bring about awareness for STD and HIV testing and most importantly, competent, comfortable um, discussions on their sexual health and individual sexual health or other um, risk factors that put them at risk for just lack of well-being, mm-hmm. including HIV. And so the the biggest part of the program is creating a safe space mm-hmm. for any individual that wants to come and talk about questions about their sexual health, about HIV, about STDs. Because, Don, you know what? That resonates in the community. When one friend knows about it, they get to give accurate information to their other friend. And that's that's actually, I think, the the, the wonderful space that WashU has been able to create, one of the many spaces we have in Missouri. And so um, those are the three large arms of what this program does. What I'm not quite sure I follow entirely. What is this doing for access for those people we talked about earlier, access being a major issue? Yes. So um, – <clears throat> the the Washington University program in general did two things about access. So let's just take a step back and talk about PrEP. PrEP is one pill once a day. It requires about four visits per year. We see you at the first time we want to um, have a discussion about it. People can think about it if this pill is right for them. And then we go ahead and conduct some testing, especially an HIV test. And then we see individuals between one and three months check in, say hi, see how they're doing kind of like any medication, whether you start a diabetes or a hypertension pill. You just want to see if someone's having side effects, 
problems taking the meds. And then we follow up every three months. Mm -hmm. And so it requires a prescription. Um, it requires um, medications, laboratories, and an office visit. What we've done specifically is we've done organizational mapping to reach organizations that serve the uninsured to accelerate their um, offering of PrEP and the prescriptions so individuals that did not have insurance can get that. And, indivi- and we're, um, we started a technical p- capacity building program with St. Louis Effort for AIDS. And everyone that's uninsured, they get an insurance navigator, and they can see if they fall into Gateway for Better Health, um, Medicaid, Medicare, or um, the Affordable Care Act. And then very or insurance with their employer that they didn't even know they had. So the conver- we take a step back and give you conversations about just insurance. And then the next thing is after organization doing the mapping in the state of Missouri, not just St. Louis, about locations for the uninsured. WashU does have a robust program, well over 400 patients for anyone that walks in the in the door without with insurance, without insurance, with insurance, or done, very importantly, under insurance, Mm -hmm. meaning you have a deductible of $5,000. If uh, someone is listening now and said, I really need some of the services you've just described, how do they go about it? They go ahead and call the number uh, um, 314-296-9098. It's our general scheduling number. They can Google prep, wash you. Um, and again, we're, you know, I want to make sure there's unity and collaboration in the delivery of PrEP in this program. I don't want to only highlight WashU. There are wonderful other places to get PrEP that are close to you and that you're comfortable with. Please remember the federally qualified health centers, Casa de Salud, the SPOT, and then, of course, Washington University. And there's wonderful private practitioners all over, the, all over St. Louis and Missouri. We will put the contact information on our website at stlpublicradio.org. You gave a lot of information there, so we'll consolidate it and put it on the website. Have to wrap this up. Jesse, uh, a final thought. What are the challenges ahead as you see it? I think the challenges ahead are uh, around Medicaid expansion because the uh, states where Medicaid is not expanded are where we have the greatest problem with access to care and getting people not only into care who are HIV infected, but also into PrEP. And I think we still have to uh, address the need for uh, additional resources to make it possible for our state health departments, our local health departments, to get the message out about PrEP and also about virus suppression and recognize that the biomedical changes in just these last few years are transforming the lives of people living with HIV, but now they can also transform the lives of people who are negative to assure that they stay negative. This is great. And while we wait for a vaccine, we have the the tools right now to end the epidemic, and we should. Is the political environment in the country today conducive to moving forward as you would like to see it happen? You know, on the international scale, we have a great um, bilateral support on both sides of the aisle for everything we do internationally. And we're finding that we have um, great um, bipartisan support also for our national efforts. But I think that with the opioid epidemic, there's a little bit of distraction, but even the opioid epidemic is directly connected to the HIV epidemic because so many people who are dying of overdoses are dying um, infected with HIV because of needle sharing. And that's a story that we don't talk about nearly as much 
but there are more people who are dying of overdoses than have died in any one year of the HIV epidemic. Wow. So uh, the vast number of, of opportunities for addressing the intersectionality of the opioid epidemic with HIV are still untapped, and I think we need a lot of education around that. Rupa, final thought? Yeah, I, I just want everyone, If I hope if they're listening to to just take the time to learn about HIV and to help spread the message, to destigmatize it, and um, and go ahead and get testing and, and not be not be fearful and and have an open, more comfortable and um, you know comfortable and destigmatizing conversations. All right. Well, thank you for this conversation today, Dr. Rupa Patel of Washington University's Division of Infectious Diseases and Jesse Mylan Jr., President and CEO of AIDS United. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Don. Thank you, Don. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU.